Hello, Reed. I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time. So, sure, it's no problem. Let's get into the fun stuff. How do you explain the book to people? How do I explain it? Yeah. By the way, is, is the sound okay for you? Mm-hmm. I forgot to bring my microphone. No worries. They can do amazing things with the internet now. They can clean it all up and audio and all kinds of jazz. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a chronicle about the, I guess, 80-year rivalry between these two giant superhero companies who are really the only names in superheroes and have been for decades. And it's about their battles back and forth, you know, their... Uh, attempts to kind of borrow ideas from one another to steal employees to kind of um, take away market share from the other one and you know now with the now that superhero movies have been this billion dollar industry um, it's been taken to a new level so I just found it kind of a fascinating story yeah when we talked over email in December I was mentioning how like even in just the, like the last two months uh, Marvel as a new head, CB took over as a new guy, Bendis moved over from uh, Marvel to DC, Disney bought Fox and stuff like that. Like, the, it's it's an ongoing story, too. There's a lot of changes, there's a lot of, like, turmoil, a lot of ruckus kind of associated with this story, too. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, certainly, as I was saying, it's much more valuable now. It's The stakes are much higher now because... You know, when I was growing up in the 70s, you're talking the comic book industry was probably worth a few million dollars than it was, uh, you know, until maybe a decade ago. And now that they have these movies and merchandising attached to it, it's literally billions of dollars that they're, they're fighting for. So it makes sense that they, they've kind of ratcheted up the pressure. Before we get into their story, let's start with your story. So what, what kind of seduced your innocence? What got you started on comics and reading comics? I was trying to remember this the other day. I think, you know, I grew up in the, in the 70s and 80s and, and superheroes were just always kind of around. Um, you know, I looked at, I was looking at pictures when I was home over Christmas of my brother and me. We were maybe five or six years old and we had on underoos. I don't know if you remember. Yes, the, the superhero underwear. Exactly. Which underoos did you have? Yeah, I had Captain America, apparently. Um, always patriotic, even as a four-year-old. And my brother had Aquaman. Okay, good call. Lame, even, even as a six-year-old. <laughs> it's funny, you know, and I can remember we was giving away glasses with superheroes on them and there were cartoons and we had bed sheets and there was cereal and all, all these things they were just kind of around and as a child you consume superheroes that way so I, I think I like most people growing up I had this awareness of superheroes long before I actually read a comic book um, but I can I'm young and I'm not sure what the first one was that I got but I can remember getting one free out of a cereal box um, from DC maybe in the late 70s that was probably the first one I ever owned um, but yeah, from there, I guess my interest just grew, and uh, I read all sorts of comics growing up, uh, DC and Marvel. You talk in the prologue, too, about how you've kind of now moved away from Marvel and DC, and you're kind of reading some of the image stuff, Saga and Walking Dead, those kind of things, which are really good. But why kind of, why did you kind of transition away from Underoos and Marvel Comics and Serial Boxes to Walking Dead? Well, I still wear Underoos, I just wanted to make that point. Oh, okay, good. This is good journalism. Yeah, yeah, you've uncovered a bombshell. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think I've moved away as much as they've moved away from me. You know, these comic book companies made a decision starting in the 1970s that they were going to cater to only the most hardcore consumers, you know, people who had been reading um, their publications for decades, these people who understood the very complicated backstory that these characters had. And it's just, 
it's gotten so ridiculously um, self-involved and complicated. I just don't think it just wasn't fun to follow it anymore. Um, there are probably people out there who enjoy it, but I just think it, it just got away from from what I really liked about it when I was growing up. Um, you know, you could pick up the average issue of Spider-Man, you could understand what was going on and enjoy it. Same goes for Batman, and now everything is just these long stories that built on you know what had come before, uh, and I just I find it kind of alienating. So I you know I don't I don't enjoy that. I enjoy comic books as a medium, and that's why I like as you mentioned the image thing. Saga I think is incredible. The Walking Dead. I really like Queen and Country, even though it hasn't come out for a while. Um, so there's you know I just feel like Marvel and DC really need to make some changes to make their universes more accessible. Uh, so, but isn't that kind of one of the themes of the book too, though? As the as these comic book universes are established, first the DC obviously with action comics and detective comics and things like that, and then Marvel when Stan Lee creates all that stuff for like the 75, 80 year history of both of these kind of publications and these publishers, like there's a tension between continuity, characters, creators, and consumers, and they don't always kind of balance that out, or they always kind of swing one way or the other way. Isn't that kind of how it? how you found it as it evolved in your book? Yes, that is true. I would say um, I suppose this whole continuity thing really started with Marvel in the 60s and um, you know they built this cohesive world and people who bought one Marvel comic tended to buy them all, but at the time you know, there were only a handful of titles that you had to buy, whereas now there's God knows how many they published, what, 75 to 80 some months, and at $4 to $5 a pop, it's just impossible to follow all of those all of those titles. But, you know, as the newsstand sales began to fall, you know, the 60s and 70s, and, and the, the publishing companies really, uh, you know, kind of hit, hit turbulent waters, they needed to find a new way to sell their comics. And, you know, that was the direct market. It started doubling down on the direct market, selling to comic shops, and as it turned out, the people who were consuming comics at comic shops were different kinds of readers than the ones who had been picking them up at newsstands. You know, they were the ones I was talking about earlier, people who were much more steeped in continuity and were much more hardcore about the characters' histories and, and um, knew all the backstory and knew what had gone on before, whereas somebody who might pick something up on the newsstand might just buy one issue and then they might come back a year later they might buy another issue and so the economics and the distribution model of comics really changed the storytelling starting in the 1970s and I think it's it's only gotten worse since then to the point where we are now where Superman you know which maybe sold a million copies of an issue back in the 1940s is now lucky to sell 50,000 so that you know that audience is just narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and I'm not sure what the end game is going to be. And then you've written before about Star Trek and the Trekkies and that phenomenon. Out of curiosity, how does that community, how does that community of nerds and passionate fans differ from the research and things that you were finding in the book and how people respond to comic books other than underoos? Yeah, it's a good point. I think they're really similar fan bases and, and Trek maybe was the precursor to what we're seeing now. Those people who followed Star Trek back in the 1960s were um, incredibly passionate about it. Um, Thing, um, I think uh, a, a lot of the, the groundwork that the, the Star Trek fans laid in the 1960s, the comic book fans picked up later. Um, cosplay, conventions, and writing letters, and you know, meeting people from the show, all, all of that stuff we're seeing now kind of playing out with, with comic book fans. And you, 
you're dealing with a, like I mentioned, like both of them, uh, Marvel and DC have been around for 75, uh, 80 years. How, how did you make the decisions on what to include in the book? Because you've you interviewed a number of people. Uh, there was other, obviously people who didn't want to talk to you, but how did you decide what stories or what facts to kind of include in the book or like, what was the process of what made the final cut? Yeah, my God, it was impossible. There was so much information. That was the biggest challenge I had with the book was the history of two companies over, like you said, seven or eight decades, hundreds of employees who worked there, hundreds of storylines. And so I just tried to come up with an overall theme of what the story was, what was the main story of the competition between these two companies. And then I just tried to fill that out as best as I could. And yeah, I mean, a lot of material had to go by the wayside. A lot of material I didn't even bother to get into, but I also had to cut material. Yeah, it kind of hurt me the amount of stuff I had to leave out. But I mean, my goal was to tell a streamlined story for mainstream readers, you know, people who might go see the Iron Man movie at the, at the movie theater and not necessarily somebody who's been following comic books for 40 years, although I hope they enjoy the book as well. So it was, um, uh, you know, I just tried to basically crop the narrative and, and sort of streamline it as much as I possibly could so that it, it made sense to those people. Uh, but I also tried to include as many anecdotes as I could because I always find that interesting. I love the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, so I hope, I hope readers find that interesting. I mentioned at the top about Bendis jumping from uh, Marvel to DC, which is a huge jump. I'm sure there must have been creators that you talked to who worked in the 60s and the 70s, maybe even into the 80s, who still had kind of hurt feelings or didn't feel like they were treated properly by one company to the other company. Is there still kind of that internal... I guess, lack of recognition and appreciation for creators. I mean, that was what why Kirby jumped, for example, right? From Marvel to DC. Yeah, but now it seems almost like like Jim Lee's working there at DC and he's fine and like he has no issues or whatever. Bendis didn't seem to have any issues. Has that kind of, that relationship kind of smoothed over a little bit or is there still kind of hurt? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think back in the day, uh, there was much more of a wall between, it started to loosen up I guess in the late 60s and early 70s and people could more freely move back and forth between the two companies but I think nowadays they move much more freely but yeah the, you know Bendis you mentioned was somebody who has been at Marvel for so long and he's such a towering figure I think he's contributed so much to not only their their publishing line but also their movies um, you know he's consultant on the movies they've made the Jessica Jones TV show I mean he's he's very synonymous with Marvel and so for him to cross cross over to the the other side I thought was, was really shocking but um, I, I don't think the I think that nowadays the creators are much more aware of the economics of comics and I think a lot of the hurt feelings back in the 60s and 70s came from the fact that the the creators didn't feel like they were getting their share of the money that was owed to them. You know, Jack Kirby saw all these characters that he created or co-created go on to, you know, be cartoons and all this merchandising, and you know, he wasn't getting any money from that. Um, and I think nowadays the creators really go into working for Marvel DC with their eyes much more open. They're aware that they're not necessarily going to receive that much money if they create characters. And I think a lot of them have also pulled back from creating any new material for these these companies. They save it for themselves and they self-publish it and they take it to image. Yeah, and you mentioned like the creators. I wanted to just touch upon like Stan Lee. We obviously have to touch upon Stan Lee. And like, how did this kind of research and some of the interviews and stuff you did, how did it all kind of shape or did it shape uh, your perspective on Stan Lee and his legacy and his contribution 
because there is a little bit, obviously he, he worked with a number of really influential artists like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby to go back to Kirby. But at the same time, it's all, there's this kind of like kerfuffle where it's like, it's not a clean uh, type of legacy. And there's some debate uh, among nerds and among uh, comic book historians on just what exactly Stan Lee did or didn't do. So how did the book and the process of researching the book kind of change or did it change your perspective on Stan Lee and his contribution to comics? Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that because, you know, you would talk to, I would interview some people and I would ask them exactly that question, you know, what do you think Stan Lee did versus what do you think Kirby and Ditko did? And some people would say 100% Stan Lee didn't do a thing. He didn't contribute anything. He just sat in an office. Maybe he wrote a few lines of dialogue and that was it whereas the artist did absolutely everything. And then you talk to some other people who are really Stan Lee fans, and they said, you know, these were his ideas, he shaped the Marvel Universe, he came up with the ideas for the characters, he came up with the ideas for the story, and then passed all the story ideas to the artist who kind of executed his vision. So I came down on the side of, of it's somewhere in between. Um, I do think, obviously, the artist contributed a whole hell of a lot to the stories and the characters, mostly Jack Kirby and, and, and Ditko. But I do think they probably would not have been successful had Stanley not been there. I do think he had really a guiding hand on what was going on. He had a good idea about how to tell stories. He came up with advances in comic world, you know, this shared universe, continued stories, giving credit to artists, you know, coming up with this fun idea of the Marvel bullpen, all these things that were really hugely successful in, you know, I guess helping Marvel to be successful. Yeah, that was all Stan Lee, as far as I can tell. So I do think he probably takes a little more credit than he deserves, but I do think he deserves a whole bunch of credit at the same time. So it's really hard to tell. And, you know, at the time when these guys were working on this stuff, I don't think they really had, they really had the forethought to write down everything that was happening and to really remember who did what. Because at the time, comic books were totally disposable, and nobody had the idea that 40 years from then, somebody was going to be making a billion dollar movie out of what they were doing. So I do think there's just fuzzy memory on all sides and people don't really remember very well what's going on, which is fair enough. And to pick up what you're saying too, Stanley also emphasized the rivalry between Marvel and DC. Like he made it a lot of fun and stuff like that. He made it almost like a sports rivalry, which a lot of businesses, there don't, there isn't a lot of sport uh, business rivalries, maybe Microsoft, Apple or something like that. But for the most part, sports is where like you're defined by the other team and how you play and like those games are the big games that people get up for. And Stanley kind of really emphasized that, that rivalry between Marvel and DC as well. And that's another contribution that he, I guess he gets recognized for. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. I, I do think he was, he was smart in that way. And uh, yeah, I think it added a whole lot to the way that fans participated with Marvel and, and with DC. As you say, they were, they were forced to choose sides. And I think that made the stakes a little bit higher and then made it a little more interesting to read Marvel comics back then because you felt like you were part of this in club. Um, and I guess Stan Lee was doing that in starting in the mid sixties at a time where Marvel was trailing DC in sales, but he was doing it as kind of like bluster to seem like he was the bigger company that they were the ones being chased. Really, it was the other way around. I think it was just really smart marketing on his part. And you mentioned too, in the, um, in the introduction that this is a story about innovation. One of the things fans overlook is the fact that this is a business. These companies are running a business. I know fans kind of have loyalty towards Batman or to Aquaman or to whoever the characters are, but it is at the end of the day, it's a, it's a business. What did you mean by innovation? And that's what, that's what the story was about. Yeah, I think the 
yeah, the, the two companies really, they're, they're in business these days because each one had some sort of gigantic innovation that has now fueled them for literally decades. And DC's innovation was they introduced the American superhero with Superman you know, back in 1938. And that made their bones in the industry. That made them a huge player in pop culture and in merchandising and in publishing and in television and in radio. And Superman is worth God knows how many billions of dollars. And that is a huge character. And then from the success of that, you know, somebody created Batman for them. Somebody created Wonder Woman. So they built on the success that they became you know, the first purveyor of American superheroes, which is obviously a genre that is still with us and still beloved. And so that was that was their innovation. And Marvel in the 1960s built upon that innovation, and then they found a new way to tell superhero stories, just at a time where the superhero was getting a little bit stale to audiences. It might have run out of gas after a while because it was just being aimed at, at kids. That's what DC was doing. So Marvel found this new way to, to tell stories that I think took superheroes to another level. And that's really one of the reasons why we still enjoy them today because they found a more mature spin on what DC had started with Superman back in the late 1930s. And as you talk to these creators, you interviewed a number of writers and editors, uh, influential people within the industry. Are they aware, or even can you be aware, of accurately understanding their legacy and what they contributed to comics and to the imagination of children and to, like, it's a, some of them had fantastic runs. I think they're aware now of the legacy of what these characters mean, in part because they are, they have become mainstream culture. So if you wrote something back in the 70s or you created a character back in the 70s and now you go to the movie theater and there's that character up on screen and millions of people around the world are enjoying it and it's earning billions of dollars. I think they're really aware that their contributions um, have become so huge. And certainly Stan Lee is aware of his place in pop culture, I would say. And even some of the some of the lesser known writers and artists who created some of these think they can take real satisfaction in knowing that these characters are gonna live on for you know, long after they're gone. And for you, for the book, are you going to be... I was half joking when I said, like, you'd have to update it, all these kind of things that kind of happened in the last two months or whatever, but are you going to expand? Because you mentioned, too, there's a lot of stories and uh, interviews and things like that that you didn't include in the book. Are you going to add them into the soft cover when it comes out, or are you going to do another sequel or something like that? Uh, if, if someone writes me a check, I will. Um, <laughs> I don't know, actually. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I hadn't planned to. That's one of the just one of the real sore points of doing a book is that you have to cut it off at some point, and so all these stories got left out, and I'm sure there will continue to be things that will get left out. And but you know, I tried to do the best I could, chronicling up to the very last second, right before I had to turn in the book, um, in, in February 17, I guess. So I tried to do it as much as I could. But yeah, I, some of these things really are interesting, and, and they deserve to have their stories told. But I don't know if they're going to make it into the book. I don't know if um, I have the time or the space really in the soft cover to update all, all the things that have been happening. But maybe. Uh, we'll see when it comes around. The experience, too, of researching the book and getting to talk to these creators and editors, did it kind of fuel your love for comics again? Kind of help deepen your love for comics? Yeah, definitely. I, especially, I, I did not know that much about the golden age of comics and the, you know, before I was born, the 50s and the 60s and during that time, I, I thought it was really, really fascinating, and it gave me really a new appreciation of, of what was going on back then, because it was just, 
it's funny, it was such a marginalized industry. It was considered, you know, they had the whole Senate hearings about juvenile delinquency in the 1950s, and the whole the whole thing was just considered really unsavory. And to see these characters rise above that and become these pop culture icons, I just find just really cool. So I have a, a new appreciation for that. All right, cool. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, putting up with the technical difficulties. I appreciate that. And uh, thank you for the book. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. I, I enjoyed chatting with you. And yeah, the technical difficulties are probably on my side. No worries. We'll see what we can do. I'll pass it on to the nerds and they can make uh, magic. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's nice chatting with you. Bye. See you later.